Hello everyone and welcome to In The Pit, a Yale School of Architecture and Paprika podcast. You are listening to the last episode of a live mini series entitled Lost Ritual Storytelling. This podcast aims to elevate the power of storytelling and pedagogy, a long tradition often forgotten in Western scholarship. Today we have an amazing friend, colleague, and guest host, Jahan. Thank you, Jahan. <laughs> And we're joined by two incredible individuals, visionaries, artists, architects, everything, all of the above. Um, and I'm sure these guests need no introduction. Their legacy reputations precede them. They're at the moment this year. But just in case, I'll give you a short, short bio of Ole Lincoln Jacobus. We received his BR from Cornell in May of 2000. He is Nigerian-born, Brooklyn-based visual artist whose work has been exhibited at venues such as the MoMA, the Soap Factory, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and the Digital Design Museum, the Guggenheim in Bilbao, the CCCB in Barcelona, where he was a participant in the Making Africa exhibit. Ola Lincoln, or Lake, has received a number of awards and grants. Sorry, is this okay? This mic? A lot of feedback, okay. <laughs> For his artwork, such as Bullshit, from New York Foundation. We're <laughs> 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 doing old school guys. No music, no mic. Um, so he has completed um, artist residencies with the Lord Manhattan Cultural Council, the Visible Futures Lab at the School of Visual Arts, the McDowell Colony, and the Headland Center for the Arts. He also teaches a class here called Virtual Futures that means Johanna Arcada. Jermaine Barnes is born in Chicago, Illinois, and received his Bachelor of Science in Architecture from the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign, and then the Master of Architecture from the Woodbury University, where he was awarded the thesis prize for his projects in Biotic Territories Architectural Investigations of Race, Identity, and Community. He believes strongly in design as a process and approaches each condition imposed on a project as an opportunity rather than a constraint. Architecture presents opportunities for transformation materially, conceptually, and sociologically. <laughs> Currently, he's an assistant professor and the director of the Community Housing and Identity Lab at the University of Miami School of Architecture, a testing ground for the physical and theoretical investigations of architecture's social and political availability. His work has been featured in uh, many places, <laughs> but most the Museum of Modern Art, the Grand Foundation, the New York Times, Architect Magazine, Design Miami, Art Basel, the Swiss Institute, Metropolis Magazine, Curved, and the National Museum of African American History, where he was identified as one of the future designers on the rise. And now after those well amazing introductions, um, and we wrote your resume, is basically, but we want to know, what is your story? And how do you define yourself? And to follow up with that question, um, how would you find your specific nuance within the dialogue of architecture? You teach here. You want to go? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay, I guess we use the mic. Uh, where do I fall within the particular architectural discourse? Is that the gist of the, the question? Dialogue, yeah. Or just and what's my story? Well, my story is. Um, I you know I've, I've always wanted to be an architect, at least as far as I understood what it was. Uh, probably from when I was a five-year-old, and that might have been some nice, uh, friendly indoctrination from my mother who wanted to be an architect, so she'd take me to the library, we'd pour through coffee table books of 
all manner of design and architecture and art. Um, and so that kind of set the template for my understanding. Um, I attended Cornell and it was a really conceptual school. So it expanded um, my understanding of architecture and I became probably much more enamored with uh, the education aspect in the studio and the idea of translating my ideas, uh, concepts, political understanding, um, awareness of a variety of social, political, cultural realities into um, kind of physical architectural narratives and form making and shape making and space making. And so I really enjoyed that process. Uh, and Cornell was a very conceptual school, at least at, at this time. Um, I imagine there's ebbs and flows and kind of it's um, pedagogical strategies, right? But I love that aspect. And so when I graduated, um, I basically decided pretty early on after graduating that I wanted to uh, pursue an artistic and art career, art trajectory. I wasn't sure exactly what that looked like. I actually had no idea. Um, but I just started applying for artist residencies actually using my thesis images from Cornell um, and landed a residency with the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. And from there, it's almost like just leapfrog and stepping stones throughout um, the LMCC residency. I met Christine Kim. Um, actually, no, I quit my job in 2004 <laughs> because I was invited to be part of this exhibit called Harlem World Metropolis's Metaphor that was curated, that was at the Student Museum in Harlem and it was curated by Thelma Golden. So first I met Thelma Golden um, and I was working for a firm called D-Box, which does now architectural visualization, but at the time was doing kind of almost like set design, virtual set design for a variety of like plays, magazine covers, editorial, fashion, sports, etc. Um, and so through that uh, exhibit, I was like, oh, I, I want to be an artist. So then I just quit my job. <laughs> and then I started applying and then the LMCC and then Christine Kim, who was at the Student Museum of Harlem at the time as well, um, came to my studio opening. And it was just kind of rolling along and along. But um, bringing me to this point, I sort of took the meandering discursive path, which I tend to do. Uh, <laughs> but basically, you know, I've, I've always seen myself um, as an architect, right? And, and uh, you know, I, I understand the conversations around architecture, capital A, being licensed and, you know, how it's positioned from the vantage point of AIA and building what that is. but. I've, I've always seen my role as kind of advancing the idea of speculative architecture or architecture as medium, right? Or architecture as an artistic medium. Um, you know, there, there are filmmakers who make films and then there are artists who use film as a medium, right? So I see myself uh, as an architect very specifically in that regard. And I reach back, of course, as I mentioned to my architectural education to the studio environment. And that is how I, how I literally shape uh, my speculative architectural works is I treat it like a studio project. I treat every single one of them like a studio project, right? 
um, where I give myself a site, a condition, a narrative, a set of parameters and rules that I work within in order to develop um, whatever my concept may be. Um, and in the past uh, four or five years, I've now, I guess, reconciled the artistic world with a bit of the architectural traditional world of building by doing large scale public installations, which are now a kind of quasi medium between the two, right? Because I'm making these installations that are, they're not necessarily inhabitable, but they do engage individuals uh, at the scale of the human body, and, you know, are sited within a public space that people engage with. So that's where I'm at, that's my story. Thank you, and Jermaine, we'd also love to hear your story. Um, so, Blake and I have a, a similar um, sort of path, but also completely different. Let me explain how that how that works. I've also only ever wanted to be an architect since I was a kid, like five years old, but not because of any sort of indoctrination. But where I'm from, the west side of Chicago, uh, we live very close to Oak Park, and so if you're aware, of the city, there's a street called Austin that they split the suburb, mm -hmm. the city proper from the suburb. And I lived on the city side, and so like our parks were trash, like they were pretty crappy. So my parents would take us across the street to the old park parks because they were nicer. Mm -hmm. And so on the way to those parks, we always played That's My House. <laughs> and that game is you see a really nice house and you're like, oh, when I get older, I want a house like that. Like, so. It wasn't sort of me understanding the formalness of what architecture, education, or the profession is, but more so, that's a really nice house. And I want to live in a house like that when I get older. And then my parents saying, well, if you were an architect, you can design your own house. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that sort of came from, not knowing that the park I was playing in was literally across the street from Brentway Wright's house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like serendipitously, like these things happen. And then elementary school in the seventh grade, like I went to this really fancy school, like grew up in the hood, but went to really nice schools as a result of how smart I was. And at that school, every single year for seventh and eighth grade, they gave you a theme. And our theme in seventh grade was actually Frank Lloyd Wright. So like every student got put into pairs. We had this huge sort of display that it was similar to like being in here at Final Review. And I had to build a model of the Guggenheim Museum. It was like my first ever architecture model like in the seventh grade. Wait, that's what? Seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. And so when I tell people I want to be an architect, I'm like, no, I'm not lying. Like, it's really true. But my good friend, Pedro De Jesus, who I've known since I was uh, six years old in kindergarten, he's like, no, he's been saying this since he was little. So this isn't anything that's new. Yeah. And it's basically, I never knew a black architect, right? I never met an architect. I just mm -hmm. knew it's something I wanted to do from there going forward. And then I studied at the University of Illinois, yep. but I only studied there. Um, and so we'll show, we'll show you how like, this weird six degree separation. So the high school that I went to, was again along the same trajectory of sort of academic excellence. Uh, the school I went to had a, had a damn planetarium, so that you know how fancy the school was. Like they had a planetarium, and every single student got their own laptop. So fancy ass school. Public school though, like I know it's crazy to hear. Not a private school, public school. <laughs> but in Chicago, like four schools get all the money. <laughs> I went to one of those four schools. So there, I had got into Yale, Princeton. Stanford, like all of these schools, but my junior year of high school, my sister got diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. So when she got hit with cancer, I was like, I don't want to leave her. Mm -hmm. So because she was at Howard University in DC, I was like, I'll, I'll either go to Howard yeah. or I'll go to my safety school, University of Illinois, if she can't leave and she has to stay here for treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she couldn't go back to school. Mm -hmm. So because she can go back to school, I put my dreams on hold because I wanted to be close to my sister. 
and stay at the University of Illinois and she had paid her better. Yeah. She passed away literally like a month into my freshman year of, of school, like September 9th, 2004. And so when I'm there, I'm just like, I already, I didn't want to come in the first place. Mm-hmm. But now this is happening. I'm stuck in this hellhole for like four more years. And it was like an awful experience <laughs> of school. Like, it was the worst. Uh, I got kicked out of school, man. Like, I literally got kicked out of school. Like, a kid who's like amazing grades, supposed to be all these different things, get kicked out of school. And I was like, why does this stuff matter? Yeah. Like, if a 20-year-old can be taken from me, like, this stuff is fleeting. It's not that important. Mm-hmm. Now realizing that school I went to was a four-year Bachelor's of Science in undergrad. So that meant I had to go to graduate school. I didn't think about these things. But now my grades suck because of those semesters at school. So now when I'm applying to graduate school, I was like, you know what? University no one knows what happened. Maybe they'll accept me for graduate school. They rejected me. I'm like, you know what happened. You're, like, you're here. We had this conversation. Like, you know, if anybody has sympathy, it should be you morons. But no. So then, and then mind you, this is too, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, you see some, some empathy, right? So then, I'm like, all right, so what do I have to do? So this is high the recession. I graduated in 2008 from undergrad. So there's no jobs anywhere. Licensed architects are being fired, laid off all over the place. I moved to South Africa, man. So like, I literally moved to Cape Town. And this is why, again, I say like, um, I'm, I'm from a very marginalized neighborhood. I specifically, my family did not grow up economically challenged. So when I moved to Cape Town, it was a non-paid internship. So my parents literally just like, all right, kid, get on this plane, what you gotta do, we pay your rent, keep money in your pocket, do what you gotta do. And so when I was there, I fell in love with the place because I learned the agency of architecture because yeah. Illinois did not teach it to me. And Illinois was like, yo, we design libraries yeah. and YMCA. Yeah. 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 And you might do something fancy like a, a preschool. It's <laughs> like, all right, cool, this sucks. But learn in Cape Town that you really can like change things, help neighborhoods do stuff. And I was working in a bunch of townships, one of which is called Kailicha, uh, with a bunch of Kosa people. And I was like, yo, this is amazing. Like, architects can do this? Never do. I'm never going back to the States. Mom, dad, going to grad school here. Love y'all. I'll be back when I'm done. That call didn't go well. Parents were like, that's a lie, because we pay for everything. We're coming back. So I'm back on a plane. I'll come back to the States. Back to the States. Then I come back to the States. My pops didn't care. My mom was like, that's not happening. Yeah. I come back to the States, and then um, I work for Nike for a bit in their design department and then I go to graduate school because now like I'm willing to write on my college letter the reason why I was kicked out of school is because I lost a sister mm-hmm. my best friend was murdered when I was in school so I didn't know how to deal with it I talk about it I'm actually a really smart kid you should take a chance on me mm-hmm. I, I trust me if you accept me you'll get like the best of the best I applied to six schools and Illinois again they rejected me again bro like twice they rejected me again and uh, two schools waitlisted me. I won't say who they are, because they keep texting me, trying to get me to teach there. I'm like, nope, you had a chance. You didn't accept me. And then, oh, I, I'm so petty. I am so petty. And then a third, a third school, Woodbury, was like, we need you to come in for an interview. So I go fly across the country, I go do the interview, and they're like, your grades were so good, except for these two semesters, what happened? And I'm like, well, my sister died from cancer then, and then my good friend uh, was murdered because his younger brother got into a gang fight and he took the brunt of it. So I didn't really care about school. I didn't care. But everything else showed you that once I went through therapy and finally got it off my shoulders and got it, like, school was easy. Like, this stuff is not hard. (laughs) Just boom. And their response was, all right, you're in. I was like, bet, you will not regret this. (laughs) Won every award the school had, like, Henry Adams, everything, thesis <laughs> award, everything. 
I was like, I told you morons are smart, but you just didn't believe me. And it got that moved to, um, I worked for an artist actually after that, uh, Xavier Bayon, uh, who's this amazingly famous artist from Paris. He's best friends with John Nouvelle. He's like, Jermaine, would you like to go work in Paris? Say, hell yeah. <laughs> like, send me across the, the world. I want to go do it. But then we won this competition in Miami. And so I had to choose, move to Miami and lead a project as a 27-year-old yeah. or go work for John Nouvelle and might never leave the office making models exactly. in the basement. Yeah. So I took the chance on Miami. Yeah. That's how I met this handsome gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> and so everything started rocking up from there. Fantastic. I mean, we'd love to know more about where you guys draw your inspiration from outside of the field of architecture. I think you started to touch on it a little bit, but kind of within and without the field, how does music, art, etc., kind of influence your work throughout your career? Oh man, everything, everything I do is for the culture. Like every single thing that I make is just a way of me paying homage to my family. Mm -hmm. um, like my parents sacrificed so much so that I can have these positions. Uh, my grandparents sacrificed so much. So I always tell myself, if my mom or grandmother goes to one of my exhibitions or projects and they don't understand it, mm -hmm. then I fail with, mm -hmm. with that project because I'm not just trying to speak to people with an architecture degree. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to have a conversation with the larger public. Um, so anything I do has to have a certain level of relatability. So when somebody walks in, they can just be like, oh, if you know, you know. And mm -hmm. if you don't know, haha, like you, <laughs> like you don't get it. So the whole moment thing, if you walk in, it's like, oh yeah, I get this. I know what this means without me having to say anything. Right. So I draw from music. I draw from sneaker culture, which I'm huge in. Um, I draw from basketball, which is actually my first love, not architecture. Um, and then I also draw from my older sisters and my older brothers who like they inspire me all the time. You got a real compelling story. I was telling. <laughs> 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 Sweating. <laughs> exactly. No, no, I was like, oh wow, this is serious. But like, you know how you navigate to here. It's always, there's always so much more, right? Um, all well deserved. You know, this dude is absolutely killing it. Obviously, I mean, you mean you know, obviously you've been through this whole thing. He's crushing it. Um, nah, I'm, I'm kind of the same. I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I draw inspiration from everywhere. You know, there's no people like that. Who inspires you? What artists or architects or what songs or music? But. You know, a lot of my architect, you know, a lot of my speculative architectural practice is world building. So my inspiration is literally the world, is the textures, is the is the buildings, is the space, is the air quality. It's, you know, the sounds, the smells, the food, because I'm recreating these these these. Um, yeah, these kind of fictitious dreamscapes that I kind of see in my mind. So there's no like. There's no, you know, direct architectural or artist kind of, you know, uh, inspiration for that kind of work because I'm seeing an entire ecosystem in my mind and, and, and what I create, you know, I always tell you, it, it doesn't even come close to what I see in my mind, almost frustratingly so, right? So I just try and get as close as possible to kind of what I'm seeing. And I'm always frustrated by like, you know, the limits of the material or the time or what have you. Um, but yeah, my process is, is very much about world building. And if, and, if, and if I'm doing something that's a small, smaller scale architectural model or an art world, a maquette, 
or sculpture. You know, you gotta you gotta adjust the language, okay, right? You know, you gotta you gotta adjust the language depending on the venue. Um, but it, you know, even if it's a, a smaller scale kind of sculpture or architectural model, it's a distillation of all of these other things and all of these other ideas. So whether it's one of my very detailed. Um, hyper real photo real montages that show these very busy worlds or whether it's like a smaller sculpture that's a kind of uh architectural folly that's a blend of several different types of items or building typologies it's it's all coming from a larger world building exercise um so i mean my my inspirations are always like sending antennas out into everything and absorbing as much as possible. Amazing answers. Thank you to both of you. And this is a little bit off script, but you mentioned Mama. <laughs> and you have an Instagram picture. <laughs> Are you the one that met Mama? Yes, I'm the one that met you, Mama. Nice. <laughs> so I, I went last year with a group of coworkers, like five or six black female architects, to the to the MoMA exhibition, which was wonderful. Happy book. Thanks, John. Um, but while we were there, we are staring at Jermaine's work at the spice rack, and this woman comes up to us. She's like, oh, do you know this architect? We're like, oh, I know all of him. He's fantastic, blah, blah, blah. She's like singing his praises. And she goes, yeah, he's my son. <laughs> and we are like, no way. Like, Mama Barnes, oh my god. So we ended up taking a photo with her. Um, that I assume she sent to you, and he posted on his Instagram, and you know people were liking it and commenting. And it's like one little comment at the bottom. It's like so nice to meet your mom. And I hope like, you replied. It's okay. <laughs> so look, you hold on, guys, look. So, so the, the story gets even crazier. So look. So okay. So my mom's finally retired. So now she gets to travel anytime I have a show. She like she always pops up. So she made sure she was there for Momo and she takes my niece with her, uh, who's like the next prodigy, like she's trying to like scope, right? And my friend from my friend from Miami sends me a photograph of my mom and you all taking the photo. And come to find out that they don't realize that the person who took the photo of them was my friend who then overheard my mom trying to <laughs> eavesdrop on them. So I'm like, so I'm like, so you were eavesdropping on my mom, my mom was eavesdropping on these other people. I was like, all y'all are some creeps. Like, just let these people enjoy themselves and let them enjoy the work. Why are you like, why are you here hustling? So it's always funny, it's funny to me now. So now anytime my mom goes crazy, she's always like, like Ma, just don't tell them. Like, let people enjoy the work themselves. Like I'm glad you're proud. Like, you gotta be quiet, man. So back to the script. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about having your work, over your works up around the, the room because it's incredible. You can't really describe it with words. It's like a picture that has to speak for itself. Um, but with this podcast, we want to focus more so on you two as people. And so with this question, I want to ask, um, what are your quirks of your process and how do those quirks present themselves as challenges or hindrances or catapults um, in your work or your education? Education and your work. Um, uh, so, I mean, as a sister, are you asking what's what's the process? Uh, I guess this question came from the. So, like, what are the oddities? Oddities in your process. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know if there's any if there's any oddities, but I'll say um, two things. I write a lot uh, when when I when I'm doing work. Um, I don't start any project without writing first. Um, my mentor sort of. 
taught me about the power of narrative and how everything sort of has a story to it. So if I can figure out what that story is, I can then make the work to support that story. Um, but then separate from that, I always find most of my inspiration from um, from albums, from hip hop albums and stuff. So I always make jokes and I'd be like, whenever my favorite artist makes a new album, I'm like, oh, I'm about to make the greatest thing in the world because I got a soundtrack that I can just put on right now. This is easy. Like I, I won thesis prize to when we can drop trilogy. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this is easy. I'm about to just put this on. It's easy money. Like I, I got something to zone out to. So for me, it's always it's always those two things um, when I'm making. And then separate from that. It's always me trying to find a way to like place my tongue firmly in my cheek as I'm doing stuff. Like everything has to have some sort of satirical lens mm-hmm. um, to it. I'm always trying to find ways to sneak in little cultural references mm-hmm. that people don't catch unless they're like from the culture. And it's like, oh, I know why he did that. Oh, I know what that means. Like I might, I might drop some Murray's um, hair mm-hmm. grease in mm-hmm. a drawing. People don't know what the hell that means, but it's like <laughs> I know what it means. Like, we know what it means. And so I find ways into doing those type of things. So the sort of cultural artifacts that we know of, but that many other people don't know of. So I guess you got to say that's my oddity is always trying to find sort of ways to um, celebrate those things. Yeah. Nice. Nah, it's, it's funny. I have, I have, I have. You, you remind me of of my oddities as well. One, the first is. I don't listen to music at all when I work. <laughs> what? I don't listen to anything when I work. Are you a social I work in Exactly. I work in complete and utter silence <laughs> sitting at my desk. If it's, if it's the summer, it's the sound of the fan going. <laughs> Nothing is playing. Does that not sound crazy? There's no, sounds nuts. There's, no, there's no podcast. There's no music playing. There's nothing. I'm just working. The second thing is, I also write, but just little short notes in my uh, iPhone notepad. Um, and I don't do any sketching for the stuff that I do at all. Um, I've been known to fake sketch <laughs> afterwards and say, here's a sketch of something. <laughs> just to send it to someone, usually if there's some kind of commission or some relationship, let me see the process. The process is literally like one or two lines mm-hmm. in my iPhone notepad of whatever it is that I'm trying to do. Um, and I dive directly into SketchUp and start either downloading and chopping up. That's the other thing. I think people don't understand how much of my process of the world building is like collaging. Mm-hmm. It really is collaging. It isn't 3D modeling from the ground up, a beautiful scene and whatever. And even when I'm rendering out, I will keep throwing in 3D assets or characters or signage or, you know, and I have enormous libraries of people, of bodega, deli signs, of billboards, of black power posters, of vintage airline uh, advertisement print posters, you know, just huge ephemera assets that I bring into my, you know, that I that I bring into my um, uh, rendering. So they're, they're so much more of a collage and I don't model that much and I'm not as technically proficient as it may seem because I just download things and chop them up and remix them and just try and find whatever shortcut. But I work, I work directly in the computer space looking at the scene. There's not like a sketch even when I've done animation, there's not a storyboard. How I do animation narratives is I just will render out 40 clips and I'll just start piecing those clips together for like 40 clips for each kind of like scene of whatever animation. And I'll just 
replace them in, in After Effects and I'll run them and I'll see if I like their order. Then I'll drop one out, put one in. It's There's no storyboarding, there's no plotting. There's just right in the, right in the 3D space is how I, how I come up with pretty much everything. Please right don't there. try to copy this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a genius at work. So what he does does not work for everybody. So just, just say it. So I kind of want to, oh, do you want to? No, I just, I just want to say that like, you so casually describe your process, but your work is so detailed. And just the way you talk about it, it seems like, oh, you just like, you know, put it together, like hot Just happened across a couple of times. Yeah, just, yeah, just it's, wanted it's to say fantastic. that. And, and to kind of stay on the topic of your work for a second, as a pioneer of Afrofuturism, um, you really kind of like create these elaborate constructions, right? And so we really find that, that your work kind of inspires hope in, this, in a sense. We find your work to be very utopic, though I think some people at first glance may interpret it as dystopic in a sense. Mm -hmm. So we're curious kind of like, where do your opinions lie with regard to your own work? No, that's a great question. And I think my my perception of the work has evolved over time. And I'm aware of its reception in the audience and how they see it. You know, when I first showed Shanty Megastructures in Lagos, I gave a talk at University of uh, Lagos uh, Architecture Department. And I mean, I just got eviscerated. One student stood up and she was so mad. She was like shaking with anger and her voice was quivering because she was like, why are you making this horrible, ugly, dystopic, uh, you know, glorifying the slums and, and sharing this work in, in Western media as if to say this is all Nigeria, the continent has to offer, and reinforcing, you know, these horrible stereotypes. And um, after she said that, the entire audience gave her a standing ovation. <laughs> So that was like the beginning of me in this lecture. So I was like, okay, we're right in it. But you know, I, have, I don't have a problem with those things. It's presumptuous to go into communities, not go into communities, but to do work that engages with marginalized communities. And I've always found, because I don't do a social practice. I don't have a social practice. Jermaine has a social practice. He gave me my first public art job and he lived, he moved to Opalaka right into the hood and lived there for what, five years? And that was his practice. And so I, I sometimes have to navigate kind of breaking down the difference between a social practice and, and, and an artistic practice that deploys narratives around, uh, you know, politics and corruption or whatever. And this is the difference. It, well, this is not the difference. This is the difficulty is that architecture as a medium in the public imagination is still very deeply, deeply, deeply seen as a solutions based mm. practice. And so that is the challenge that I face in the kind of work that I do. If I say I'm doing, you know, I'm creating these fantastical works in Oakland, you know, or in, in like in the hood somewhere or in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria, the, 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 the first thing the audience wants to know is, is how am I fixing these problems, right? So I've faced kind of this uphill battle of, of trying to say, that speculative architecture doesn't need to fall on this binary of you're either creating the solution or you're not. You know what I mean? There's like there's 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 much more to the conversation. Um, and I always try and be clear that I'm I, my speculative work is not to replace any of the social practice work, any of the really good work. It it, it can be important to challenge. For instance, in architecture mm -hmm. schools, there's so much architecture schools are led to believe that they can change things, and so 
you know, not to say that they can't change things, but there's sometimes a lack of awareness of working with communities and just how much infrastructural issues play into kind of work you're producing. You know, architects saw that in Katrina, right, with projects that were very well-meaning, but kind of fell apart because there was no institutional infrastructural community support around the work. It's much more than simply really good design. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying all that to just say like, you know, when, I, when, I've had the, when I've had these conversations, I'm always kind of open to the perception of, of the kind of work that I'm doing and how they are seen by particular audiences. I've never thought of my work as you know clearly utopian or clearly dystopian there's always been a kind of evolution what i will say my work does is acknowledges kind of like the 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 the, the black and the african diaspora tradition of managing to thrive and survive and have full lives and lives of dignity and to create and to produce against whatever those odds so i think that's the concept of hope that manifests in my work is that, for instance, the MoMA project sets up a very kind of aggressive, negative capitalist system, right? This mobility credits that completely disenfranchises, you know, the community, uh, particularly Brooklyn, very much to the point where you can't even leave your neighborhood. But then through that work, what I create is, well, what have they, you know, what is this community creating? Then I think about, you know, whether it's aquaponics or agricultural or whether it's like, you know, drone seed farms. I just create all of these kind of, uh, they call it solar pump, right? Or fascinating green technologies that work with you know my experience with the neighborhood and culture and the rosters that you know run the produce markets on Nostrand Avenue, right? And so I imagine what you know these you know what community members might produce out of these particular conditions, and that is probably the element of hope that always manifests in kind of the the, the work that I'm creating. Thank you, and and with that in mind. Um, you spent so much time looking into your guys' work and researching your background in history, and I didn't know that you gave him his first job. <laughs> his role is so small, and um, Sippy and I spent weeks thinking about who we wanted to invite for each episode, and every week we have these like heavy-hitting heroes for us, basically. And I know it's like kind of hard or weird to use the word hero, you know? But you are. Really, really, you are. You are to us, and we wanted to ask, um, if either of you had ideas or hopes or intentions to write a book or continue your legacy. Uh, like, uh, when I was in undergrad, for my thesis, I wanted to do Afrofuturism, and my professor was just like, that's not real work. And I had nothing to show, and I like, spent like a minute looking, I saw your name and your work, and he was just like, oh, maybe it is real work. Uh, and Jermaine, like, <laughs> your work has influenced Sydney so much. And she's got a great opportunity. That's her work up there, yeah. based off of you and your thoughts and your classes. Um, so, sorry, Ben Gerling, let me comment down. <laughs> do you have intentions to write a book or how do you hope to continue your legacy past yourself? So like 10, 20, 100 years from now, uh, and still continue. Yeah, I'll just say quickly, I mean, I wanna do all of that stuff. <laughs> and, and, and for me, yeah, and, and, and I guess it's, it's, it's really great to hear that, you know, that there are people watching and appreciate the work. And I mean, that's fantastic. I think I have to have more of an awareness of that. 
I'm really like, you know, that as corny as it sounds, like I'm that person that just does this because this is what I love doing. I literally couldn't do anything. Like when I quit my job in 2004, there was no plan, you know? And there's definitely a privilege in that. Similarly, you know, I have, I have, you know, from my, you know, you know, from my mom, you know, like, like an incredible support system that, which is, you know, has, has always told me like, oh, you can do anything you want to do. So when I told my mom, I was quitting my job, she said, great because you're too talented to be producing work for other people there was no like what are you gonna do how are you gonna you know so i've always had that confidence but i really create because i have the desire to reproduce what i see in my mind all the time so uh, as far as legacy if, if that happens it's fantastic but i, I want to do a book i want to do a film i want to do whatever i want to work in whatever medium can get me closer to what i see yeah. you know um, and what and if we can do it without needing platforms and institutions all the time, the better. But that's the only reason why these things for me haven't been done yet, right? Because I have to navigate through a particular system. Yeah. Um, so b before I give you my, my ambition, I just want to uh, point out to everybody that Lake sort of glanced over the fact that the Shanty mega structures that he came up with, which was just recently acquired by the Museum of Modern Art, so now he's in their public. He's in like a yeah. So it's like, so it's, it's, he's one of three people <laughs> that's black, that's an architect designer that's in their coffers. Right? That's, that's, that's a huge uh, accomplishment. Mm -hmm. um, ambitions, books, movies, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of you in this one. So uh, I have my first book that, that came out September 17th. Um, it's called Vigilantism. I actually yes. spoke with Eager today. He said we sold the entire first room with the 500 copies. So like they're all, they're all in. Um, I like that maybe it's like, it's like my first compilation album. Like, like <laughs> in, my, in, in my age group, like, like you have the old Dipset album. So yeah. like there was like, you all your friends together and you rap on it, that's the thing. So this was my first version of that. And like the idea behind the vigilantism text was about black bodies in white space. Yep, yep. Um, and so it got quite a few people to write about this. And this is before the George Floyd reckoning. I gotta ask you publishers are. You gotta put me on. Yeah, so this, oh, this, was, so, so this <laughs> was Moss Context, yeah. This was Moss Context. And, and we, we found this amazing uh, uh, black indigenous um, queer graphic designer who I was like, yo, not only do I want you to be a graphic designer, but I also want you to be a contributor to the book. He's like, well, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I want you to just write. Like, I want you to use your design techniques to have a voice and give a voice to the issue. Um, and in the end, we took Lake's uh, massive four gigabyte catalog of black bodies and then <laughs> inserted them into the book, which disrupts a lot of the other yeah. people's text, which is really about the entire instance of black people as a, as a spatial act and being inside these places as, a, as an act of vigilantism. And so what does it mean to be a vigilante? So um, that was actually my first one. That's, that we're doing that simultaneously to moments. Like, I don't know how to yeah. sleep. <laughs> so that was the first one. And then Lake always knows, I'm always trying to find ways to keep myself busy. Yeah. So when I got the Architecture <laughs> League Award last year, they were like, hey, we do this exhibition. Here's $2,000 to show your work. But because of COVID, it has to be online. To which I said, well, I have a website. Seems sort of redundant to put more work on there. And they can just go to my website. Mm -hmm. Can I do something else? It's like, what do you say? It's like, can I make a movie? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, people can make videos <laughs> and they work. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. no, no. I mean, like, I want to make a movie. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to make a movie which talks about delight and joy and happiness and the porch and, and black cultural aspects. 
I don't want to be anywhere in it. Like, I want this to be an actual film. And they were like, well, I guess you can. And so I put in some of my own money, in addition to the money they gave me. Mm-hmm. We made a five and a half minute film called You Can Always Come Home. We debuted yeah. it there. And then it got it got selected to the New Orleans Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Was there. So it was like, people were like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm just trying to find ways. <laughs> just trying to find ways to like take, take the work and like show the work in multiple forms. And like, I'm nowhere in the film. Yeah. My voice is nowhere in the film. I just try to find talented people who do amazing stuff and be like, yo, here's my vision. Can we make this real? Yeah. Or here's my thought process. Can you make it real? And that's how I actually met Lake. Yeah. Because when we when I was in Opalaka, being like a bright eyed, 27 <laughs> year old, turning 28 with braces, like I can save the world with architecture. Yeah. And then you get there, you realize, no, we don't want any of this. It's like, oh, okay, gotta humble myself real quick. Like, and that's not learned. It isn't solutions oriented. It's like, it's actual relationship yep, between yep, people. Yep. And we had this huge building that we renovated and we made work and we did this open call for a public art uh, mural. And I had came across this work in Chicago and I was like, yo, I know this guy, his name's Lake. Like he does really cool stuff. We should get him to do the thing. I'm like, screw this competition. We should just get him to do it. <laughs> and so we reached out to him, we put together the proposal and he did it. And then once we got it installed, the city of Opalaka told us that goes against all of our zoning codes for color palettes. You gotta take that down in 30 days. So once it all got installed and they saw how the reception to it, they went and put their photographer out, took a picture of the building, now it's in City Hall. And it's like, you guys are morons. But like, I'm always trying to find ways to like break out of the medium of architecture. I think it's very, very restricting. Yeah. Um, especially for the things, the ambitions that I have. Right. Yep. Um, like sometimes I want to do architecture, but to be totally honest with both of you, I really don't care about buildings. I know that's weird to say. That's someone who designs buildings, but I'm really like, I'm really good at designing them, but I don't care. It's like, it's not, I'm more interested in the people that inhabit the spaces and the things people do within those spaces. Like that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. So I'd like to say my practice is more sociology than it is, well, more anthropology than it is architecture. It's just architecture as container, but I care way more about what's happening inside of the container. So anything that allows me, any type of medium that allows me to explore what's happening in those spaces, Mm -hmm. that's what I want to interrogate. Absolutely, and I think think as the, is this working? It's not working. working? (laughs) (laughs) I think as the field of architecture kind of becomes more and more interdisciplinary. You guys are two excellent examples of how you can find adjacencies to the architectural field to kind of communicate the same message. I think, you know, you guys both enjoy a relative, a a large amount of success, right? And for being relatively young. And I think it's easy for people to kind of turn a blind eye to the challenges that you may face in your practice and expanding your practices. So we'd love to know how, you know, what, what do you think the biggest challenges to your respective practices are right now, despite the success that you've enjoyed? Ooh, okay, so I've been I've been trying to tap this for a while, so thank you. Thank you for this, for this uh, assist. I guarantee you I knocked this shot down. So I, I always have this, always have this issue about what I like to call low res versus high res. All right. And so I run a social practice. Mm-hmm. That is a fact. That is not the only thing that I can do. There are so many other things that have the talent to create. And oftentimes, work that is seen as socially oriented doesn't get the same mm-hmm. accolades or the mm-hmm. same attention mm-hmm. or the same sort of um, sort of recognition as the high-res stuff, the avant-garde stuff. 
So in the end, like when, when you're when you're making a farm for an area that's a food desert, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. When you're making a park for a neighborhood that's having green space, nobody cares. When you're renovating a old roofing company, just so people have a gallery where they can have baby showers and stuff like that, mm-hmm. nobody cares because it doesn't photograph well. Um, the materials are often seen as low craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nuts and bolts things, the things that they're necessities, mm-hmm. right? It's not the glamorous. $20 million budget stuff with huge curtain walls and, and sort of parametric sort of computational facades and stuff, right? So I used to always get pissed. I used to be like, yo, I am just as talented as you are. I just don't have the budget and people don't care about this work. <laughs> like all they see, like they say they care about it and they say they're progressive, but they don't really care about it. They care about it from a theoretical sense because those budgets are unlimited when you're in academia. You can take the same social project and give it unlimited budgets. Like, oh, look at this amazing community innovation center. When in reality, your budget might be one tenth of that. You can't do half the stuff you're trying to do. So when, when I became an assistant professor, the first thing I said to the dean is like, you need to give me a whole lot of money when I'm taking this position. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, not in my salary, in my research money. Like, trust me, like I can do good stuff. I just need a budget. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have money to do this stuff. Because oftentimes when you're doing socially, socially oriented work, you're taking money out of your own pocket or you're taking money and like, you're never going to make a, a, any type of budget or any type of positive thing. You're being a red almost all the time. <laughs> at most, you might end up with a zero balance, but you're never in the black. <laughs> so we're doing the work and they finally get this like surplus of money from the provost and then boom, award, 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 award. We're like, I told you morons. Like I said this already. I just needed the money. Like I just needed the money. So I always tell people like we have to start valuing quote unquote low res because while it may not have the same budget or may not have the same sort of audience as the low res stuff, it's equally as important. And I promise you some of your heroes, some of your favorite architects they're not any more talented than somebody else. They just get way more money to play with. Yeah. Like it's very easy to design really cool stuff when people open up their budget and you can sign whatever you want to sign. It's hard as hell when you got to decide between MDF or plywood. <laughs> That's when it gets harder. That's when you really want to see who's clever, who's innovative or not. When you take that tiny budget that you have no wiggle room yeah. and you make something that's interesting. Yeah. So for me, the biggest hurdle is always the money. It's always the budget. And then, and I'll end it here if I give it the mic to um, Lake. It's convincing older people that they should listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) Because oftentimes I walk into a room, they're like, oh, you look like my son. Or you look like you're in high school. I'm like, yo, I know I'm short, but like, I got got a beard. (laughs) Come on, bro. So like these things are happening. And so we're in these meetings, we're doing these things. And so I've learned though, I can weaponize my cuteness. And oh. so what I do, yes. I weaponize it now. So now what I'm going to yeah, so I'm weaponizing. So like, this is what I do. This is the Chico. This is the Chico. I tell them, you worked so hard to give me opportunities to send me on the other side of the train tracks to learn from all these people with all the tools. And now I've come back. Let me do what you sent me to do. <laughs> and it's been working so far. So like, in, in the spring, we got some big projects, like some big traditional architectural projects that are coming with really big budgets because like I hit them in the suits, but I was exactly. like, so why did you make me go to these all white schools and you don't want me to actually use the stuff I learned? <laughs> right? So you gotta weaponize the stuff sometimes. <laughs> That's actually very true. That's actually, I mean, it's, you know, you can say, you know, for, I always say, you know, I'm, 
And I'm, I'm not someone that really cares about institutions. It may not seem that way because you know, once I've you know I've been fortunate to be in these kind of shows, but 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 I just understand what they do. They just grant you access to more spaces. There's a lot of stuff that I want to do that I can't do my, you know what I mean? There's a lot of stuff that I want to do that I can't do right now because I need the budget for it. You know what I mean? Like, I want to just have a solo show of amazing, you know, architectural, just fill a room at the tape. I want to do that. I can know, I, like you said, I know I can pull it off. I know if you give me a fabrication budget, I'll make a world of wonders or something. You know what I mean? But it's, but, but, but yeah, the, the limits are getting getting money and getting the access and getting someone to trust what you do and there definitely is a low res and there definitely is a high res and there definitely is i can for instance i at, at any point during my career i could pivot to something much more commercial you know like i can do i can do stuff with adidas and nike and then all of a sudden you know their world they have marketing budgets in the billions so it's nothing for them to say go and do this and I'm not opposed to that, but I'm just not really. And I know if I get it, it happens, I can do it, it'll be fun, but I'm not energized to pivot to doing that kind of thing. And again, I'm not above it or opposed to it. It's not selling out to me, it's not anything. I'll do it, you know, it'd be great, but my, but I just kind of rather do what I'm trying to do, right? Um, and another thing, again, this is, and this is, you know, none of this stops me from doing the stuff that I love doing. But again, we are beholden, if we want to live as these artists and architects, we're beholden to operating through these institutions. For right now, I really can't see a way around it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, very specifically as an artist, you know? To kind of like, you know, to make a certain amount of loot a year. You know, you have to find a way through these institutions. And so, one of the things I'll say, which is fascinating as well, which is, I do a lot of work that doesn't have to do with blackness. Mm. That's strictly aesthetic, strictly formal. Collages, like my Hi-Fi Distill series, series of collages. They're just collages inspired by Garrett Riefel and whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> Nine by 12. And I have, you know, and I've had, you know, many curators come from galleries and look at it. Oh, I love this. Oh, I love this. No one here has ever seen that work unless you've gone to my website. It's never been shown. There's zero interest. There's zero interest in any curatorial museum gallery space of work that I do that isn't about blackness. It isn't. So we're fundamentally saddled and labored with uh, a, a work that is pushing uh, dialogue or that is tasked with being relevant and dealing with our political and social realities. I can't just go paint some random shit that I want. So I remember I, I, I uh, like, exactly right. Like years ago, I did this governor's, uh, years ago, I did a governor's islands uh, residency, which is also through the LMCC. And, uh, you know, they give you like, they have these old buildings right there on, on the island. They give you like a room. And so I was setting up my stuff in my room and there was another black artist there. And he had these, uh, he had these comic book covers that he had painted over. And they were all about police brutality and black. And he taken like Spider-Man, redone, you know, painted a suit, uh, you know, painted a police suit on uh, Dr. Octagon or something. You know what I mean? They did these weird like re revisionings of stuff. And you know, we're just talking about work. 
And he's like, oh, but you really gotta check out my, uh, you know, like my paintbrush series where he literally just, you know, he, 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 he'd paint these beautiful, very abstract stripes on like some uh, mylar or something and let the paint dry. And, his, and it was just a series of incredibly beautiful, simple like strips, just these abstracted strips. And that's like what he really loved. And it was really dope. I was like, this is dope. Like, you know, this is such a, a distilled, minimalist, but beautiful, abstracted. He was like, this shit will never go nowhere. <laughs> never be seen, never whatever. And that's literally the burden of the black art. So, so it's like, so it's like, that's just the reality, you know, the, you know, the, the, I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm the Afrofuturism guy, but I'm also the little nine by 12, uh, modernist, Gary Refill-esque inspired, you know, primary colored, uh, axonometric, isometric collage guy as well, you know, but you're never going to see that. You're never going to hear about that version, right? Because this is, this is our responsibility for the kind of art or architecture that we produce, it, it has to be relevant. It has to have a social relevance um, that, that we're tasked with. And so that's that's probably the biggest thing outside of money or whatever, you know. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's only the black stuff. <laughs> uh, this has been amazing. And we have at least six more questions you want to ask, but I want to open the floor up for one or two questions if anybody else has. Um, but if not, we'll, we'll close. Yes, Karen. <laughs> uh, should I just, I can project. Um, my question kind of has to do with like pressure cookers that like kind of stimulate change and creativity in like new eras and like art and architecture. Um, I'm mainly thinking about like, um, like post-Civil War and like Jim Crow South and the African-American diaspora, how that like Funnel people to different centers and creating new cultures and um, World War II, just like any catastrophe you can think of, like there's always kind of like a funneling of creativity. And I kind of wonder, um, we have this like looming, impending doom of impending, impending doom. Here comes the cultural shift. From where you are in the art and architecture and like world and more part of the social commentary on those things. Do you see any, or like, are you getting any indications of where these like concentrations of change are kind of accumulating, or like where you see people kind of looking ahead mm. towards that, and are you trying to project on how you can comment um, as writers? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're right now in the middle of a pandemic and also a massive racial reckoning that has reverberated throughout the entire world, right? So the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor protests have have manifested all across the entire world and vastly different, you know, many different countries for whatever, you know, uh, political realities and conditions that they're facing. I think we're literally in the middle of that moment right now. Simultaneously, there's like the absurd backlash. I call it rather, it's called the white lash, right? The anti-CRT, but, but no one who's against CRT can even define it. You know what I mean? Like, so there's just, Right, they just know that, you know, so it's, right, so it's so funny, because I always say, we always think from the vantage point of, this is our revolution, but the scary thing is, this is, this is like their revolution as well. This is like, and, and, they're, go and, and they're way more violent. We're not even violent, they're way more violent. They're like the terrorists who just planted bombs, like the white terrorist dude who just planted bombs in Pittsburgh, 
He literally planted 10 backpacks with 10 bombs that just didn't go off. He has he he's been he's 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 been uh, uh, his his charge is 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 time served mm. and and three years of probation. Mm. Who else in this country could plant ten bombs that failed and get excused? So we were so it's happening on both sides. So this absolutely the moment we're in, which is probably why we we out here like racking up more of a war because yeah. simultaneously that desire by certain neoliberal powers that be to be on the right side of history. So we know there's a lot of attention for the type of stuff that we're doing. Um, but we riding the wave. Riding the wave. I actually find that, um, that it's really impacting young people. Um, I know it's weird for me to say that as a young person, but I'm old with regards to young people, so I can say that. Um, like I, I do a lot of volunteer work in Miami with um, high school kids. Uh, one of the organizations is the Young Arts Foundation, another is Arts for Learning, mm-hmm. where like, I try to find time for the summer um, to teach design skills and stuff like that. And all of those young people feel emboldened by what's happening mm-hmm. to find some sort of social anger. And so this is across all disciplines. This is visual arts, this is design, graphic, uh, architecture, furniture, industrial, um, theater, drama, etc. Like they're all really finding their voice now, which I find like extremely compelling and super cool. Because like when I was 16 years old, like man, I was just trying to get my license. Like, all I cared about. Like, these kids are like really trying to solve problems. This this is against. I mean this is across all ethnicities and genders. Yeah, yeah. Um it's not just like just the black kids, right? Or like just the brown kids. It's it's literally all of these kids. And then in at the college level where I teach in the undergrad they challenged the professors way more than I ever would have thought to challenge my professors when I was in school. Yeah, like, <laughs> I was taught, you stand there and you just take your butts, and when it's over, like you might have wasted money on the model that just got ripped apart, or some drawings that just got drawn over. <laughs> you go home, you get some sleep, you go back and do it again tomorrow in front of your firing range. You do it again, you do it again, you do it again until you're done. These students nowadays are like, nah, fam, we're not going to do it. You know how much time I spent on this? You know how much I spent on this? You know how much sleep I did not get? So we're going to talk about this project the way that I'm going to talk about it. Roll it back, roll it back. Yeah, we got a problem. Which I think is dope. Like, I mean, I love that. So now when I'm on juries, I ask the student, like, how would you like to talk about your work? Because I know you put so much time into this. You don't want this thing to get derailed. And then next thing you know, you off here talking about something. He's like, yo, bro, project's over here. We're talking about this. Like, I spent a lot of time doing this. It's very intentional. Can we have a conversation about that? Right. So I think that all these things are happening. Like, they're all being conflated together. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that it's super positive. Um, obviously, you have, like, the old guard who are pushing back against it because, like, it's just disrupting the ways that they've been raised and the ways that they've been taught pedagogically. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if I wasn't taught that way, then you can't do it. You, you gotta do what I went through. And if I got shot 50 times, you gotta get shot 50 times also. Where it should be, I got shot 50 times, so I don't want you to get shot. <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah. like to me, that makes the most sense. <laughs> but obviously that's not the case, or else we wouldn't have student debt right now. Exactly, yeah. if I got student yeah, loans, yeah, you gotta, <laughs> pay mine, you gotta pay yours. Like, bro, yours was like $15. Like, <laughs> so like, when you're looking at these things, I think I think for me, that's how that's how I position it. Um, Lake and I are in that weird generation where we're like in between, where yeah. you're not yeah. quite 
old enough to be seasoned architects and artists while also not young enough to be like super fresh. Yeah. So it's in there. And even then I poke fun of him all the time because he's still older than me. So I'd be like, hey, old man. And he doesn't even like it. <laughs> exactly. He was like, weekends out. I'm like, I'm a smooth, I'm a smooth 15 years older than thinking about weekends out. I can't, I probably can't name a song. <laughs> well, you're sitting in silence in your studio. <laughs> I'm in silence anyway. Yo, that's, is that, that's not crazy. Like, if I don't get enough on crazy he says he sits there with nothing on like like he, he's listening to like the oven beep and like that's that's what he's doing work to like the oven in the microwave I've, like, got a, I've got a constant inner monologue going all the time and it, it, it is it's never quiet again, so. thank you thank you Karis also in my class plug yes um, are there any other questions before we run yes thank you very uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here with us. And thank you. I, I think something that you touched on earlier was like the struggle to get maybe older, more established people would trust you and give you a chance. And I think it's maybe kind of indicative of generally architecture where the youth isn't really seen as an asset, uh, like maybe in other um, industries like fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like my question to you is like, you what was that like when you were first starting out? Like, what did you do? Like, what did you have to do in order to like just um, yeah, really convince somebody to take a chance? So I think I think that's a a wonderful question. I'll I'll tweak one small part of yours, and that's that. Older people know how valuable young people are. That's why they keep you around. Yeah. They just steal your ideas and don't give you credit for it. <laughs> because they find ways to like keep themselves fresh at your expense. Mm. Um, and that happens a lot. Like there's a lot of idea vulturing that happens um, mm-hmm. through the whole intern apprenticeship model, which is it's my name that's getting us the work. So you just do the thing and I'll take all the credit. And then once you get enough time, you can then go out on your own and do the same thing to somebody else, mm-hmm. which is again, a really crappy way. Um, to practice. So I know when, when I was interning in South Africa, which is an amazing opportunity, but it also, it was free. And then when I came back to the States and I was working for Xavier, um, like there's some things that I designed that came straight from, that came to him as acquired pieces that my name is nowhere near. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm like 100% of that I did. Mm-hmm. Not like my, I did like, this was mine. That's <laughs> mine. That's mine. Mm-hmm. But my name is nowhere on the thing. And so I would say that the way that I was able to make my mark is that you just have to get, and it's gonna sound extremely ridiculous, but it's the truth. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta find somebody who's equally as ridiculous as you are, because then they won't be afraid to give you those opportunities, right? So the project in Opelaka, which allowed me to bring in a lake and everything, this crazy centric black guy named Willie Logan, who's like the youngest mayor in the city's history at like 20 years old. So he was already a little out there. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't shock him to have someone like me run a $3 million project. He's like, well, I did it when I was 20. Mm-hmm. You're 27. It's like, I gotta be able to do it, right? So in that, in, that, in that sort of way, like that's how it happens. And then the crazy thing, the, the real thing though is, once you get that opportunity, you have to deliver. Like the camp situation where you get the opportunity and then you mess up a few times and it's like, oh, give me another chance. Mm-hmm. Like when you're doing it, like that's, that is the opportunity. And a lot of times you don't get the second one. And, and I'll close with this if I give it to um, to late. Mm. I tell my students this all the time. Like Sydney's one, I tell this all the time too. It does not matter how talented you are. 
No, that sounds crazy. It does not matter. Every single one of you are talented. At the end of the day, can I look at your face every single day and enjoy working with you? Because if you have an awful attitude, if you have an awful personality, <laughs> I do not want to work with you. If you're someone who's not as talented, not as resourced, but you're just really fun to be around, I can teach you the stuff to make you talented. Mm. But if you're really talented and you just suck as a person, like personality-wise, uh-huh. I have no desire to be around you and no client has any desire to be around you. So a lot of times you have to check yourself and check your own privileges or check the way you speak to people or how you treat everyone or how you treat people who can do nothing for you. Because to me, that's like the best gauge of how you are as a person. And if you're able to do those things at a very high level, then there will be absolutely plentiful opportunities for you. But if you always find yourself being smug or being that person who every single word has to have 13 letters and 14 syllables, it's like, it's not gonna go well for you. <laughs> we all know those people, like it's not gonna go well for you at all. And you're sitting around mad, like I'm so talented. Why don't I get work? It's like, because you're not fun to be around, man. <laughs> Nobody wants to be around you. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> what was the question again? I was, I was sitting there laughing uh, about uh, getting people to trust you. Oh yeah, getting people to trust you. Yeah, yeah. no, and, and it's so funny that to, to Jermaine's point. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like both art and architecture, maybe to a lesser, maybe not probably to a lot of sense, places a lot of you know, you know, well, at least is is very forgiving of an eccentric asshole, you know, personality or attitude. Like, oh, they're talented, they're whatever. Um, yeah, it's, it, and, 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 and I think less so kind of like in public art. And that's, I think the, the experience that I've had that, that I have an enormous advantage when I go for public art projects, um, uh, both uh, having the architectural background, but also not, but also not being this kind of, Super incredibly self-important artist uh, who 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 sacrifices interacting with others and being open and transparent with communities because I have to get my brilliant idea executed no matter what. You know what I mean? So those relationships are kind of important, right? Um, being a, yeah, being able to interact and engage with a variety of com- communities and be. You know, flexible and transparent around. You know, transparent about your 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 process goes a long way, and and quietly delivering. You know what I mean? Which is like, yeah, I just you know, like it's 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 funny because I'm always working on kind of like public art projects where uh, there's budget issues or there's issues with the community doesn't like this or that, and uh, everyone's always kind of panicking, and I'm always really calm. You know what I mean? And I was like, how are you how are you never. Tr- and I'm like, cause it, it's gonna get done because it has to get done. And like panicking will not change anything going around. So I was like, Lake is always so calm. And I'm like, you know, we're talking about a budget for this pro- project in Charlotte. And I'm like, I haven't seen any numbers that make me uncomfortable yet, you know? But when we get there, if, if that does happen, we're gonna figure it out, you know, figure out how to work back, where we're gonna work, you know, because it, it's just gonna get done, you know? Um, and that's just the approach. And that has nothing, you know, that has nothing to do with being a star designer or whatever, you know, I mean, just kind of like a quiet, you know, I, I feel like sometimes competence in, in the very like purity of the word is undervalued, like being good, but also being competent, just getting the shit done, you know? Um, is, is I think far more valuable and far more kind of inviting trust 
than, than being some eccentric who drives everyone on the team absolutely crazy, <laughs> but makes the most amazing thing. You know, that's a theatrical, romantic, uh, you know, reality. That's not the, you know, being cool and getting it done is, is, is much more valuable for, you know, being invited back and getting projects and getting folks to trust you. Well, <laughs> um, I want to say thank you, the sincerest, sincerest thank you to the audience. I know it's final season, all of you guys are burnt out with the for the last episode. Thank you. Yes, Jermaine. thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Jermaine. <laughs> thank you, Wake, for coming. Yes. And just like dropping all this knowledge so casually. It was so fun. <laughs> Jahan, thank you, guest host. Thank you. Thank you for putting team. Thank you for having us. Couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you for coming out. Um, that's the end.
Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed episode two.